Good evening. Welcome to The Pipeline. I'm senior columnist with the Western Standard, Corey Morgan. This is our weekly news and affairs show and panel where we'll have a few of us uh, breaking down and giving our thoughts on the top stories of the day. So I am joined uh, on my right. I'll start actually with our opinion editor, Nigel Hannaford. How's it going, Nigel? It's going good. We got a lot of good stuff today, Corey. There, there it is. We, this last few weeks has been so easy to, <laughs> to find stuff to talk about. It's just paring it down to what we're going to focus oh, on is the bet. hard part. And uh, next to Nigel is our news editor, Dave Naylor. Hey, Dave, how's it going? It's going well. I'd like to first thank uh, my makeup artist, Michelle, today, yes. who did a fine job covering a, uh, what, what was it called? A, a small blemish that erupted on my forehead overnight. I thought you looked particularly pretty today, Dave. Uh, I kind of looked like the prime minister the other week, and everybody thought he may have got a high heel to the head. <laughs> We're still speculating. We're, 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 I'm saying that subject has never really got cold, has it? No, no. It's the water cooler of the situation. Well, you know, until there's an answer, we can, mm -hmm. are free to speculate. He won't tell us exactly. Well, he said it was roughhousing with the kids, I think. But yes. All right. Well, on to more serious matter. Actually, I will start before we get into all the issues we have. As I said, we're lined up today talk about our sponsor one of them and it's the canadian shooting sports association you hear me talk about them every week on the pipeline here or derek when he's on it they have been a fantastic sponsor and they are a fantastic group it's a, as it sounds it's a shooting sports association if you take part in shooting sports whether it's hunting collecting target shooting it doesn't matter it's your business you got to stand up for your right to keep doing that and that's what these guys are about you join that there's safety in numbers it helps protect your rights, but they need you to become a member. Check them out. Canadian Shooting Sports Association. Their website is cssa-cila.org, or just Google them, Canadian Shooting Sports Association. Take out a membership. Invest in your freedoms, guys. It's important. All right. Speaking of freedoms, free podcasting is under threat. Uh, Ottawa is coming after us, Dave. What's going on? As uh, Nigel so eloquently put it in one of his columns this week, it's the uh, the anaconda of censorship of strangling the uh, strangling the country. This time they're after uh, podcasts, uh, streaming services, uh, and uh, I think we should go to our business reporter Sean Polzer to fill us in. All right, Sean, bring us up to speed. Guys, how's it going? Um, gee, what is there to say? So um, they put out the first uh, draft. Uh, rules, I guess, on uh, C-11, uh, which was ostensibly to um, uh, regulate uh, big streamers like uh, Netflix and Apple TV and all the people that uh, are um, distributing what they consider to be uh, equivalent of uh, broadcast uh, things like uh, movies and programming. And uh, the bill was ostensibly to uh, set uh, Canadian content limits similar to what uh, regular and a code of content a code of conduct similar to what uh, regular broadcasts have to go through. Uh, but there was this kind of sneaker in there that uh, podcasters, uh, anybody who makes over about $10 million is going to have to register with the government and uh, potentially be uh, regulated for the content that they stream on their services. Yeah, so Nigel, I mean, you know, the term registry, that always gets a chill and down my back immediately. I mean, that's always the first step to more control, isn't it? Can you imagine having this discussion five years, ten years ago and said, everybody who aspires to be a newspaper has to be registered? People have said, what? If I want to start a newspaper, why do I have to tell the government? I'm just going to go and do it. That's, we have free press. Well, this is not, this is, uh, the, the, unfortunately, the newspapers blew that when they started taking 
government money because in order to get the money, they had to give them the address, you know, send it, to, send it here. So that isn't quite the comparison that it used to be. But really, why should anybody who has got something to say have to register as a certain cat, uh, certain uh, type of sayer uh, in order to uh, in order to go and have their free speech? Now, one of the things that Sean mentioned was that there was a ten million dollar annual revenues uh, um, threshold. If you don't meet that, you don't have to register. So that sounds okay, but I'm wondering, maybe Sean will enlighten us on this. Maybe you don't generate $10 million a year as a podcaster, but you probably don't have your own carrier either. So are you going to be captured by the fact that you have to, that whoever is carrying your podcast is going to have to be responsible for what you say? And therefore, you will have to be careful what you say. Is that how they get the little guys? I think so, Nigel. I think that's uh, ultimately where it's leading to. Um, you know, even the example of the Western Standard, uh, we're far below that uh, $10 million threshold. But at the same time, our even the pipeline, as I understand it, is going up on services like uh, Spotify and uh, Apple, iTunes, you know, so those people that were ostensibly the targets of the of the legislation are indeed going to have to probably start watching uh, what kind of content that they put on. I'd also like to say that this is also wrapped up a lot with uh, C-18, so uh, which is the uh, Online News Act uh, to uh, force companies like uh, Meta and uh, Google to pay for linking to uh, Canadian content. And uh, Google in their blog yesterday said, and it was more with respect to C11, that what is considered to be a news agency should follow the criteria of uh, the companies that have accepted uh, the government bailout money to, to be considered uh, a journalistic outlet. Well, I think one of the things, John, um, not to take away from you here, Corey, but I think one of the things that's fairly important is that this legislation that we're talking about and these CRTC regulations that were announced last Friday have their uh, genesis in Bill C-11. And what has really happened here is that the government wants to make everybody who puts anything out into a broadcaster so that they can then uh, apply the standards to that person. Now, CBC, CTV, Global... They've been broadcasting for years, but there's always been under the CRTC a stipulation that they they have to do things in a you know in a in a certain type of way. They can't be extreme. They can't be they can't do what some people do on their podcasts. Otherwise, they get censured, and uh, you know there are penalties. Well, the great thing about podcasting and just being able to upload your your YouTube videos and so forth is that you never had to worry about whether it was all in good form and good taste and according to the the spirit of the regulations. I guess now, if you do something a little crazy, they're going to cut you off. And not everybody who is speaking truth that needs to be heard is doing something crazy. So when Dave used that 
expression, which by the way, was not original to me, but but I'll, I'll take the credit, the anaconda of regulation. I was just watching a, a video of an anaconda the other day that came up when I tried to find the origin of the phrase. And you know, the coils sort of go around and they get a little tighter and a little tighter. And pretty soon you don't even hear the pig anymore. So it's, uh, it's gonna be kind of like that, Sean, I think, that free speech in this country, they're just going to tighten it and tighten it. And it's not gonna be like you had in authoritarian regimes where somebody comes in and walks into the newsroom and arrests everybody and sends them off to the gulag. You just will find the administrative effort of trying to say what you wanna say isn't worth it anymore. That's the danger. Well, right. Sorry, Sean, go ahead. I was going to say that's true because um, in the legislation, they are aware of uh, some potential <clears throat> charter conflicts. And uh, even though they are greatly expanding the role of CTC to do things like collect personal information from these companies on their subscribers, uh, the government went at pains to uh, suggest that uh, any of these infractions, this uh, new, this enhanced regulatory role for the CRTC, will not result in uh, criminal uh, process, the creation of criminal offenses or criminal prosecution under under the Act. But at the same time, uh, they have noted that uh, there's going to be some potential infringements on the role of the CRTC under the uh, Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So th that's another whole can of worms that uh, nobody's really opened yet. I think uh, one of the things that's warming the cockles of my old curmudgeonly heart is seeing all the podcasters, many of whom we know, say, no, we're not going to do it. And uh, uh, I think our operations minister, James, has tweeted that we're not going to do it. Uh, it kind of reminds me of the firearms registry when people just said, no, I'm not going to do it. You know, So the, I think there'll be a backlash amongst podcasters. They're, they just won't do it because there's not many that are earning 10 million, even though we're pretty close. Actually, no, we're not. We need more advertising. Uh, but uh, yeah, I don't think uh, I don't think many podcasters will uh, will play along with this one. But it's insidious, right? Like before I came to the standard, I had my own <clears throat> little podcast. I'd set up an audio and I'd interview people, and I would also stream that to Facebook and YouTube. And I used a service called Podbean, which probably is over ten million dollars. The problem is, I registered with them, not the CRTC. But Podbean has my information. And then it shares it out to Spotify and, and the other heavyweights, iTunes. They all now have my information. I'm registered with them. I think the CRT has been smart. CRTC, why go after all the little guys like me when they can just go to the hosts? And when they say to the hosts, this podcast has been appropriate, it's been inappropriate, you wipe them off of the air or we're going to come after you. It's turned them into the police. And uh, it will be effective. Gosh, it's like the waitress asking to see your QR code before she sits Very you down. Much. Uh, made the restaurants the same, place. Same basic playbook. Uh, you know, there, there is one other thing that we need to put out here on this matter, Corey. I know you've got three other fascinating subjects to go to, but you can see why the CRTC exists in this sense that you have an electromagnetic spectrum and somebody has got to be the policeman so you can actually use it so you don't get two people trying to broadcast on this on the same frequency so i inadvertently in a column on this use the phrase the government owns the airwaves no they don't but they are the most logical 
entity to police the airways. But the thing is, they don't own the internet. They have no actual business in this, in, in trying to police the in, internet. This is a straight intrusion of government force into something that was previously free and unregulated. That is an iniquity in itself. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, it's hard to hard to resist this, though, the way they've structured it. So before I let you go, Sean, I mean, I know you're following this and you're going to be writing further, but you see any signs of how groups or individuals or anything are resisting this or can resist this? Well, it was uh, kind of ironic because I had to put a briefing paper together for our, our publisher, Derek Fildebrandt, on uh, C18 and uh, going on the websites and looking through uh, supposedly some of the public comments and there were none. And I, and I also have to laugh about uh, Nigel's reference to owning the airwaves because it's actually a Ramon song. I don't know if you're familiar with it or not, Nigel, but it's We Own the Airwaves. <laughs> I don't think Nigel listens to that type of music. <laughs> well, we'll see as this unfolds. I mean, I, I, it's far <clears throat> from over. So uh, thanks for the update, Sean, and then uh, we'll let you get back on her there. Thank you. See you, Sean. So, uh, yeah, I mean, just a little further on that one, because I, I don't think enough people, the common public realize just how insidious and problematic this is. And that's the scary thing. You know, I said an anaconda or like the frog and water analogy. Mm -hmm. uh, people already plugged in might realize it, but they're a minority. And when they've lost this, this source of information, they might not even realize it was there in the first place. And that's really scary. Uh, Canadians are generally apathetic, I think. Anyways, um I mean, look, we've had Trudeau for 10 years. That just shows you what the hell that is. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's a very, very important issue. You know, it's, this isn't central, but just I was watching, I think it was a podcast from, from Tucker Carlson, and he was recommending that if you care about facts, if you care about truth, you might want to start getting a collection of the books and the encyclopedias that you respect and that you want to make sure are still available to yourself and maybe to your children because they can change anything on the internet. But they, they we're still, I think, a fair way off before they can break into your house and seize your library and send it to the, send it to the dump. Well, send the firemen in to uh, burn the inappropriate uh, yeah, well, literature. Uh, I, I think somebody predicted that once. Some, something to think about, get it in, Get it on paper. Keep it. Hard copies. If it matters. Information has always been a struggle, and then this is a new, just the latest chapter, but boy, they're getting bold. All right. Well, let's move on to where there was a democratic exercise last night. Manitoba went to a general election, and uh, I guess the pollsters, it sounds like they were kind of right in this one, Dave. They were right. Uh, history was made last night in uh, in Manitoba with the election of uh, our first First Nation pri uh, Premier. Uh, Wob Canoe uh, won, I believe, uh, they're still counting uh, at recording time, but uh, looks like it's around 31 to 25 seats, uh, defeating uh, Premier Heather Stevenson, Stephenson, excuse me, uh, and uh, she immediately resigned last night. Uh, the, uh, uh, the big issue seemed to be health care, uh, the, uh, the NDP promising hundreds of more doctors and reopening closed hospitals, and uh, the, that seems to have resonated with uh, with. Uh, Manitobans, and uh, you know they may wake up one day and say, "Oh my God, what have we done?" Because uh, the last few NDP governments there have ended in uh, overspending disasters. But uh, the good people of Manitoba have decided two terms of Conservatives uh, is enough, and 
the NDP orange flag is now uh, uh, risen. Well, I mean, some of it, Heather Stephenson, she's becoming the, since becoming the leader of the progressive conservatives, she's never really been able to capture support. She's been the, the least popular premier in, in uh, Canada in a number of polls for, for quite some time now. And, and she just wasn't able to bring it together. The NDP presented an alternative. Well, you know, I, I, I think uh, and I'm, I'm channeling our uh, columnist on the spot in Manitoba, Linda Slobodian here, but I think that there's a tremendous um, hostile memory to the way that the government of Manitoba handled the whole COVID business. They were more restrictive than we were here in Alberta. They were more like the government of Quebec. And so much of it, as we've learned, was not, was not necessary. So Manitobans apparently being, another, and again, I'm channeling Linda here, but Manitobans being as unforgiving as they are, they're making her wear that, even though it was actually Brian Pallister who was premier at the time, and she's never been able to get past that. But I agree with Dave, the, the track record of NDP governments coming in and taking over something that is functioning reasonably well and then turning it into a nightmare for the taxpayers is a, is, is a well-attested one. We have our own Rachel Notley to turn to for proof points. She has them by the, by the bundle. But, uh, you know, when I first came to this country in, uh, a long time ago, uh, the social credit had been governing for 30 or 40 years. In came the NDP and Dave Barrett. Lasted two and a half years, and then the Social Credit Party was back for another 20 because we said, not going to do that again, you know, and then they did, of course. But <coughs> Manitoba actually had a balanced budget last year, yeah. and I'll bet you dollars to donuts is not balanced at this point next year uh, because of increased NDP spending. But getting back to your comments on COVID, there were a couple of uh, uh, Tory cabinet ministers who were pictured during the lockdowns flaunting uh, you know, at, at parties and not wearing masks and, and not, uh, uh, you know, social distancing enough. And, uh, you know, Manitobans didn't forget all that because they, uh, it was a case of politicians doing what's what's good for thee is not good enough for me. So uh, they, uh, you know, they wore it. I think you're right. It was a COVID fallout. Comparisons were indeed drawn to behavior at the Sky Palace. Yes. In our very own Alberta government. It's um, it's most unfortunate, but you know you, when you when you sort of lash out in anger, whether it's in a domestic dispute or uh, in a in an election, you usually end up wishing you hadn't done that. Oh, hypocrisy infuriates people. I mean, whether it was the Sky Palace or the Manitoba issues, or that was happening in the UK as well. I mean, it was devastating. People mm -hmm. were seeing on both sides of people thinking that the government was too restrictive. Well, then when you're suffering under those restrictions and you see them not following through or the people who feel that the restrictions are appropriate and they say, well, they hear these guys are putting everybody at risk by not masking and, and gathering. So you lose support on both sides. Yeah, I was going to say, you really stunts. don't have a constituency left, do you? No. I'm just no. going to say. They just don't get it. And and, it, and that ire can last for years mm -hmm. as, as it's hung over uh, Stephenson later on. But I mean, the presumption that they'll fall into deficits is probably a safe one, but Prairie socialists have often been a bit of a different bunch. You know, the ones in, in Saskatchewan under Romano were quite pragmatic. I mean, Romano balanced the budget. He was forced mm -hmm. to by high interest rates and overspending. But uh, is it impossible to believe that uh, Premier Kinu could be fiscally restrained? Well, 
uh, it does go against the grain. Um, one expenditure that he is now, it's now his problem, is the possible excavation of the landfill, which has a price tag of $180 million, which doesn't sound very much in the, the way politics is these days, but uh, is still, you know, is that the sort of thing you want to spend your money on? The background to that is that uh, um, a number of indigenous women were murdered. There is a fellow who's accused of their murders in custody awaiting trial. And the suspicion is that he disposed of the bodies in a landfill outside Winnipeg. But he did so so long ago that the possibility of finding any, this is a tragic case, by the way, I'm trying not to, you know, I don't want, I don't want to sound like I'm being too clinical about this. This, this is a heartbreaker. Um, but the chances of finding human remains when you don't know where they were put, if they were put there at all, that's actually not proven. If they were put there, how do you find them? What's going to be last left? And is there in fact uh, a danger, a greater danger to the people who are asked to sift through, you know, thousands of tons of what we have thrown away, which often is contaminated by everything you can imagine. So there are dangers to this, but Canu, I believe, in his in his uh, um, campaigning, promised to do this. So now and, and the the uh, it, it was quite a spectacle because the, the the Tories campaigned against it. Yes, they took out newspaper ads saying mm -hmm. we will not search the dump. Uh, and even I will add today, the uh, the feds said they were going to pony in seven hundred and fifty grand uh, to. Out of a what, hundred eighty million dollar cost? Yeah. So, yeah, that's one campaign promise he's got to live up with. And well, that itself could or else cause he's off budget to a bad problems. Start, but I mean, that's a bad. Well, and to, yeah. to add a sympathetic ear, I mean, if it was your family member who disappeared, presumably murdered, and you did truly believe their body had been disposed in a landfill, I mean, how awful and humiliating! And you'd like to think of them not being properly interred, whatever your local culture is being <clears> they call <throat> for. But you know, I, I. I I can't subscribe to the no price is too high mentality on things. Sometimes the price is too high. Yep. $180 million is way, and we know this is an estimate. It would be much more than that if they were to be thorough, and we they, the bodies might not even be there. This ties into another issue that is just a, since we segued in, it's something I've been on about a lot. Why is it that we're willing to spend, or some activists, $180 million to look for the bodies of two people who may or may not be there? And we still haven't excavated a single one in Kamloops where supposedly as many as 200 murdered children may be buried. Yet we can't do that, which would you could probably do at a few thousand per grave, to be blunt about it. Uh, we've got a big double standard going on here. Corey, I would advise you, if that is the way you think, to say it out loud now while you can. Yes, seriously. <laughs> I don't think that that's going to fly when that's not going to be considered fair comment. And the CRTC is adjudicating your podcast. It is denialism. It is denial. Frustrating, though. You know, I mean, it, is it sacred indeed to reclaim the remains of murdered Indigenous people and, you know, reunite uh, them with the family and properly inter them? Or is it not? Because uh, among the activists set, I'm seeing a very clear cut double standard going on here right now. Mm -hmm. Yep, you're right. 
which led to an odd wedge issue that really did impact the Manitoba election. I mean, I, what an untenable position for the, the PCs to be in. I mean, you don't want to say yes to it because you're opening that up. And it'll be interesting to see where Mr. Kinu goes when the finances come in. There's one other place where it'll be interesting to see where Mr. Kinu goes. As, as we've been covering in the Western Standard for more than a year, there's considerable interest in an energy corridor mm -hmm. from Alberta through Saskatchewan along Indigenous-owned lands out to Churchill for the purpose of exporting energy. Now then, will Mr. Canoe, as a committed NDP, back that plan, which is basically an end run around federal legislation that uh, makes it very hard to build pipelines across provincial borders. But if it's on in indigenous land, it's a little different. So will he, ha does he have a bit, will, to coin a political phrase, will he see the business case for doing that? Maybe uh, advance that? Because Mrs. Stephenson, I'm afraid, was not very helpful on that file. She was lukewarm at best on at that, best. actually. Yes. Uh, Mr. Trudeau welcomed uh, Mr. Canoe today by saying it's nice to have a premier he can work with again. Another shot at uh, Ms. Smith. Yes, well, and but I mean, again, maybe. I, I'd like to, at this point to give the benefit of the doubt. Mr. Kinney is a, an unknown. He seems yeah, to be well, a smart gentleman. By no, I mean, it, it is so, the benefit of the doubt. It's, um, it's an open question. Per, Sometimes NDP yeah, premiers per, have a... They know they've got to get the money from somewhere, and they well, do what they have to do. And if it's partnerships, as has been proposed for some of these corridors with other Indigenous groups, it might be something that actually Mr. Kinu could facilitate more effectively than Stephenson was... Uh, well, she just never seemed to be into it. I never could understand that out of her. She wouldn't say no, but she wouldn't say yes either. I think that's part of the problems with her leadership in general. Mm, that's why she was uh, Canada's worst premier. She didn't do anything. <laughs> And uh, yeah, if you stand for nothing, eventually it catches up. Or well, some, except for our federal leader in Ottawa. We may as well segue into that in federal provincial. Actually, I guess he does stand for a large number of things, just Wrong. rarely gets them done properly. Uh, so Prime Minister Trudeau uh, was speaking to Alberta business leaders in Ottawa, Dave. He was. It's a, sort of a trade Alberta mission uh, down to Ottawa. We uh, sometimes take part in these uh, in other countries. Uh, going to other countries, but it's very rare to uh, to send in and mass onto Ottawa. Uh, Fifty CEOs of uh, you know the some of the top fifty Alberta companies went down to Ottawa, uh, you know, to try and hold talks and uh, talk some sense into them down there. Uh, Prime Minister spoke to them, addressed them on uh, on Tuesday night, and uh, took a few shots at uh, Premier Smith, saying uh, she was basically trying to stoke the fires of fear. And uh, no, accused uh, accused Premier Smith of being a fear monger with all these, uh, you know, uh, as we know, uh, uh, the UCP has now started advertising campaigns in I think four other provinces, uh, telling people that enough's enough, uh, we can't afford it, we can't afford the uh, the, the net zero electricity, uh, we can't afford the carbon tax, uh, and, and in fact, there was a big van with that message parked outside the House of Commons uh, yesterday. Uh, so MPs got to see that. Uh, uh, as they left question period for the day. But uh, yeah, last night, it doesn't appear that there's any any warming at all between uh, between Trudeau and, and Smith. Oh, but I mean, he, Trudeau was speaking to a business crowd, not his, uh, his own vanity might make him think that they like him. But uh, in reality, I think most particularly uh, Albertan business leaders don't think highly of a lot of the policies coming out of there. I don't know if uh, taking shots at Smith to that crowd is endearing Mr. Trudeau to them uh, in that environment. Yeah, you know, it's a, 
Think about it, Corey. What a situation it has come to where one part of the country has to get together 50 of its best and brightest to go and market itself to a federal government, which they've got. They've got a Ministry of Western Economic Diversification. They've got a similar entity for Eastern Canada. Um, they say they're interested. They say they want to do good things. But obviously, the perception here is that no, they don't. And we have to go there in order to get something done and try and change minds. But what a commentary on the state of relations between the central Canadian region, which we call the Laurentian region, and other parts of the country. We spent a lot of time criticizing uh, Mr. Trudeau for a lot of things, but boy, this, is, this kind of division is a product of his leadership, totally. Lack of. Or, well, well, the leadership that he's given, which is deficient in so, so many ways. Um, it doesn't surprise me that he would take the opportunity to take shots at Smith and uh, business people being what they are, I wouldn't count on their loyalty. Uh, some of them no doubt laughed politely and some actually thought, yeah, you know, we got it would be better if we had somebody else. That's unfortunately the way big money thinks. They'll work with who they have to. I mean, they're in business, not uh, politics, though the two uh, overlap quite often in the old Venn diagram. But, uh, I mean, we've got, I'm waiting for that shoe to drop. They're hinting at it all the time. Gilbo's talking about it. Wilkinson's talked about it in Paris. He's afraid to talk about it here. They're going to bring in an emissions cap. I mean, it's almost a done deal, and it is going to adversely impact businesses out here. And you know, this sort of meeting would have been the opportunity for Trudeau to at least try to, I guess, make the case for why that won't harm them that badly. But mm -hmm. they've, they've said, Gilbo has said the, the cap is coming in before the end of the year. And we're already you know, into October. You know, the end of the year is getting pretty close. So it's coming. It's going to be quick. And I think that's going to be the day when, when the shoe drops, so to speak, that, uh, that okay, full-on war from, uh, from Alberta to Ottawa. Because yeah. it's not going to be anything that Alberta can live with, I don't think. You know, sometimes, uh, Dave, I, 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 I get the the suspicion that these guys know their time is up. That whenever the next election comes, they're going to be to the sidelines for at least four years. So they're doing all the dumb stuff that they believe in, and the hell with the consequences. The trouble is, some of the dumb stuff that they do is going to take much longer to undo whoever forms the next government. It's kind of ironic. That's one of the few downsides I see with you know, term limits that we see in other jurisdictions with uh, a leader. When they hit a point where they know, this is my last gasp, that's when you see the worst of the patronage appointments, the uh, ideologically bent policies, then, okay, well, I'm going to fire this in because I won't be here to face the consequences mm -hmm. if it fails or, or goes. And, and the, the, the entire world has sort of took a, taken a look at the, the environment stuff and say, okay, you know, it's... It's, it's a good idea, but we can't do it at the pace everybody wants to do. We need to slow down because it's going to be very expensive, except Canada. You know, everybody in the world is, is drilling for more oil and doing natural gas, and they seem to find a business case for it. Uh, but in Canada, and we're the only major country in the world, we still are plowing ahead, you know, uh, guns a-blazing. And I think, you know, you may be right. Uh, the Liberals realize that at most they've got two years left, and they're going to try and do as much damage as they can. We certainly can. I, I, I mean, even in Ontario, a provincial uh, report came out from a, a 
you know, group out there. And, and it, it said that if they phase out natural gas, as has been talked about for Ontario to meet the targets that have been set for it for their generation, it's only 10% of Ontario's capacity, but it would actually lead to an increase in bills for average Ontarians of as much as $3,200 a year. Like this is what's catching up with the Trudeau government. I think in public support, like people are just can't take more wallops to their pocketbook for his ideals, but yeah. he won't back down. But the, the, even the provinces are starting to say, look, we can't do this. There's a commentator by the name of Warren Kinsella last night tweeted, uh, just found out my mortgage payments are doubling next month, dot, 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 and the Liberals wonder why they're losing in the popularity rows. Yeah, it's the economy is starting to hit, and it's starting to hit Canadians hard. Well, I mean, with, with two more years to go, though, it's, I mean, I, I was thinking earlier today, I've been predicting it, I thought, Trudeau is going to take his figure of walking the snow soon. Because, I mean, it's just nothing's gone right for him in six months. Everything he touched has turned to a disaster. And his personal life is serious. Got some challenges going on, which, you know, is not really our business, but it obviously must impact his decisions and, and where he's looking going forward. But looking at his attitude going in, he's reminding me almost of that Iraqi minister from the past war. You know, everything's blowing up in the background. The, the guns are on their doorstep and he's still saying, no, don't worry. Everything's good. It's just doing all right. Like, he, he just won't. Just just look at this week with the election of uh, the Speaker, Canada's uh, first black speaker. Uh, he was a former parliamentary secretary to Trudeau uh, and had an ethics violation uh, seven months ago. Yet it didn't stop you know the, you know the Liberals from getting their, their own speaker again. And Trudeau was pictured today in the House uh, sticking his tongue at him and winking at him. I mean, the disdain that Trudeau has is is unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, no, nothing will change, I'm afraid, with this with this fellow. But I honestly believe he means to stick it out, which means electoral death for his party. To be honest with you, I'm almost glad that that's the plan. It's a painful way to do it. It's like it a might, chemotherapy. You're going yeah, to do, but, but, cause a lot of damage to healthy tissue on the way of getting rid of this. So, okay, but look, let's say he stepped down tomorrow. Who's going to come in and replace him? Are we, would we like Christia Freeland any better? She just commented that she, I beg your pardon, it was her department who which commented that they didn't even know how much we were spending for interest. That's the kind of stuff you should know. Would you be better off with Mark Carney? Well, he probably would know. <laughs> governor of the Bank of Canada, Governor of the Bank of England. I imagine he's sort well, of Carney's frightening because he's actually quite bright. He's actually it's quite so bright. Cool. So if you think it's tough, I I say it, let Mr. Trudeau do what he can for the next two years, lose the election, and start putting things back together again. You know when they say build it back better? Maybe just put it back the way you found it. Yeah. You know, well, and, what an election slogan. But I mean, and I can see that with some of them who've already feathered their nests well enough saying, oh. fine, we'll ride this two years out and go out in the sunset, you know, in our blaze of glory. But there's, and is the, the, that that loyalty of liberal members of caucus is going to fray for some of them, some of those backbenchers realizing, like, I'm going to be done. I mean, they must have had some aspirations in getting into politics and some goals are they going to sink with that ship they're just insistent no matter what when they realize yeah at some point you would think the long knives would come out but uh, no sign of them yet they're all being kept sheathed well, they can use bats i'll mail them stuff yeah you know the magic number six years that's when the pension kicks yes. in for members of parliament so you've got to win your seat and then you've got to hold it 
for at least two years. Then you get six years, now you're on pension. So whatever they're feeling about their chances in uh, 2025, you can bet that that's a factor in the back of the mind. Wow, I'll be, I'll be just over the six years if I got it, uh, you know. There's a lot of them will be who under the six years. Yeah. So they would have more to worry about. Uh, That'll be a consideration. They won't tell you that. No, they think they still never admit it. All right. Well, let's get on to our federal government and their fiscal uh, ineptitude. They always offer lots of it. Uh, apparently, they're cutting, but not cutting a billion dollars from the military. Yeah. Late last week, our top generals were at a at a committee hearing where it was revealed that uh, the liberals have asked them to cut a uh, billion dollars out. Uh, I mean, if there's, in my opinion, if there's one phase of of Canada's, uh, you know productivity that shouldn't be cut, it should be the military. Our military is already in a bad, in a, in a bad place. Uh, uh, you know, we had the big joint exercise, biggest joint exercises ever in NATO over Europe with the Air Force a few months ago, and Canada couldn't go because I don't think we had any planes that uh, could get there. Uh, it's embarrassing. Our Navy's embarrassing, uh, just in terms of the, the, the number of ships that can, can, they can put out. Certainly our submarines are a laughingstock. Um, so to, to to then say okay we want another billion dollars out to me it's just it's not farsightedness it's just and but then on the other hand they're taking a billion dollars from the canadian military but they've given nine billion dollars to the the ukraine's military so that's leading to a lot of uh, questions being asked nigel it certainly is the thing about trying to cut a billion dollars out of the military, they face the same problem that you or I would face if we were trying to take money out of our budget. What can you cut? Well, you can't cut the rent. You can't cut the mortgage payment. The bank tells you what it's going to take just to consult it. Um, it's sort of tough to cut the power bills. If you need it, you need it. If you don't need it, switch it off. But if you do need it, you're going to have to pay the bill. And you can go through your family budget line by line by line and say, well, there's so much of this that we can't actually touch. Alimony payments, try and cut that. You know, good luck. Um, so what do you cut? Well, you cut how much you spend on eating and you spend on gasoline and things like that. And what the military is now facing is that all the stuff that they actually do, the training, the preparation, is where they're going to have to find that money from. Not, there will be no less people occupied at DND headquarters. The ships will still be tied up alongside. They just won't be able to afford the fuel to take them to sea. If you are a squatty and you want to go and, uh, and you're hoping to get trained up on some machine gun, you're going to find that they don't have the money for the ammo anymore. What they had, they gave away, and what they and, and with a, a budget cut is ammunition. That is, uh, is um, but all of them, they have so many fixed costs. I mean, however many people they really have, they got to pay them. So that you can't cut unless you find that the predictions really are true. There's a hell of a lot less people on strength than what they claim. So it just renders the whole operation, um, I won't say useless, because that would be an insult to the people who are still trying. But I remember Harper 
used to say that our line was that we need to give the troops the equipment they need and the respect they deserve. Under Mr. Trudeau, they have had no equipment and they've had no respect. And it's the latter that is the killer. And this cut is just one more kick. Well, it's surprising in a sense of, uh, not that Trudeau cares about our military. I think it's pretty clear he doesn't. But he cares about himself a lot. Mm -hmm. He always has. And he fancies himself as an international player. That's why he loves those overseas gatherings. He likes to pretend. And I think most of the world has seen through that. They don't take the buffoons seriously. But he still goes. One of the areas, though, is with NATO, which has become so important uh, of late with the affairs going on in Eastern Europe right now. And they've always been critical of Canada. We haven't pulled our weight. I mean, they won't kick us out of NATO. But they say, you know, the amount you're supposed to be obligated for domestic military spending to be a NATO member, we're well under that. We have been for a long time. And to cut further puts us even worse and taken even less seriously. And, and we get sidelined from more NATO events, talks, and uh, actions. I mean, can Trudeau not see that? I mean, if he wanted to buy his way into being <coughs> taken seriously on the federal or the, the international front, that could have been one of the means. And he's just sidelined himself further as well. No, you just take a look at the billions and billions he's given in uh, uh, subsidies to electric vehicle, uh, and, you know, the battery places and manufacturing places. I mean, that, the military could have used that as a world of good. Uh, you know, uh, food banks across the country could have used that to, to feed hungry Canadians. Uh, but you know, he's continuing on with these vanity climate projects uh, that are costing taxpayers uh, billions and billions of dollars. So. It's just, a, it's a, you know, as we can agree that he doesn't care about the military and uh, this is just yet another priority he's got wrong and cannot see it. You have to wonder what will happen when uh, they actually have an emergency in this country for which the military is the only, the only solution. Well, and that's something that, you know, Canadians don't like talking about. But the reality is our security as a nation has always been fully dependent on our southern neighbors. I, I, I mean, there are some of the smallest nations on earth could successfully invade and take Canada over quite quickly, but they know that that juggernaut down south of us would not tolerate that for a minute. But talk about taking your friends for granted. You know, they get a little tired of pulling the weight on our behalf. I mean, not just NATO then, we're getting on to even uh, Joe Biden, who doesn't seem to be all that uh, endeared with Trudeau either. Uh, it's just no, their relationship thing. is certainly soured uh, you know, from the halcyon days. But yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, the Chinese invasion plans when they're coming across the Pacific, they're not worried about Canada, you know, because we can maybe wrestle up, you know, one one warship and we're lucky maybe a leaky submarine to, to stop them. But uh, thank goodness the states are there to protect us. Mm -hmm. So when I was working on seismic projects in the, the Arctic up on the Beaufort, and that. we would joke about it, but it was the truth. You know, under this, we were in a camp frozen in a barge out on the, the ocean. They're playing games under us in the ice. The Russians are down there. The Chinese are down there. The Americans are down there. They know about the resources of the high Arctic. We actually housed Government of Canada scientists in our camp because the oil companies could get to the higher Arctic reaches where our own scientists couldn't afford to get up there. But you know who wasn't down there? No Canadian subs, because we don't have them. We, we had diesel ones that we, we cooked a couple of our sailors just trying to bring them over from England when we bought them. You need nuclear capability to get up there. Yeah. And, and we, So how do we claim our sovereignty up there when we can't even reach it? And, and war discussion aside, I think Nigel was hinting at it earlier. What happens if the big one hits, uh, hits uh, Vancouver? And 
you know, it's a natural disaster and uh, uh, the military wouldn't be able to overly help much, you know, because they, they just don't have the manpower or, you know, training anymore to do it. It's yep. the way it goes. And, you know, you can play with the science fiction of this as well. And, um, you know, imagine a, imagine a situation which is easier to imagine these days than it has been when the United States is so preoccupied with its own internal politics that that land assumption we have that they'll always be there for us <laughs> may not be so. I mean, actually, it would have been just uh, it would have just been science fiction to talk like this 20 years ago. But so much has changed down there recently that it's kind of getting a little bit end of empire about, about it. Uh, so say that a, uh, another country, let's not name names, but say somebody said, well, we're putting a, a, a research station on, a, on an island in the high Arctic. Yes, we know you think it's yours, but actually not everybody agrees, and we're going to be there. Now what are you going to do? We don't have the capability to meet that sort of a threat. No, and, and we had that, that ongoing battle with Denmark over a hands island, I think it was. It, you know, it's symbolic, yeah. but it's real. And uh, there, there are people questioning who has sovereignty over those areas. I mean, I, I know Canada will never have a giant standing army. We can't. It's just sheer numbers. But I think we should have a one that has a, at least a limited technological, you know, high standard so we can reach every corner of what we claim is our territory. To be honest, I... Any country going before a world tribunal saying they don't have a claim to that area because they can't even get to it is a pretty valid case. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be funny if uh, Prime Minister Modi, uh, you know, he's so pissed off at Trudeau right now, he may say, okay, you know, let's take over this little island here. And just as a you know, poke to the chest of Trudeau. We shouldn't ideas. even talk like this on the air. If they're listening. We do, hey, we do know that the, the Indian in, in 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 news networks have. Uh, yeah, well, you're a star there. Yeah. Standard, yeah. <laughs> I got more of more of an audience in India than than I do in Alberta these days, but I, I, I wouldn't drop that dog in there. Either. Well, listen, you may have more of an audience there than here, Corey, but I don't want to see you coming in in one of those caftans with a little hat. <laughs> you know. I respect the Indian population. Don't do what the Prime Minister does. <laughs> no, and, and I certainly value the Albertan audience more, more so than those in India. Well, okay, we'll cap that off with where that's I think we should. standing. That's enough for that. Uh, those of you in India or Alberta, though, uh, we appreciate your subscriptions. So if you haven't subscribed already, that's how we stay independent. That's how we're going to beat the podcast bands. We'll just go around them. We need you guys. WesternStandard.news slash membership. $9.99 a month. $100 a year gets you past the paywall and you can see all of our content. So uh, again, thank you, Nigel and Dave. And uh, well, we've solved a few of the world's problems. We'll get the rest of them next week at this time. But all right, thanks guys. The current Lethbridge feed grain prices for October 4th are as follows. Cash barley's at 340, feed wheat's at 355, and corn's unchanged at 352 per metric ton. In the million wheat markets, December Minneapolis futures lost 11 cents at 7.14, with local hardwood spring bids for October movement at 9.40 per bushel. In the oil seeds, nearby canola futures are down $2.70 at 7.14.70 per ton, with delivered values for October movement at 15.88 per bushel. In the pulse markets, nearby red lentils are trading at 36.5 cents a pound, and yellow peas remain at 10.75 per bushel. In the cattle markets, December live cattle gained 55 cents at 186.20 per 100 weight. For more information on grain marketing, call me at 
394-1711. I'm Sean Smith of Marketplace Commodities, accurate real-time marketing information and pricing options. Canadian Shooting Sports Association, without the CSSA, our gun rights would have been taken long, long ago. These guys are on the front lines helping to draft smart and intelligent firearms regulations and legislation in Canada, and more importantly, educating the public about how we keep guns out of the hands of the wrong people. You become a member, it's absolutely worth every penny.